0: Friends, this morning we start into a new series on the book of Ruth. I've made a promise to myself not to tell bad Ruth jokes. Um, there is a really particularly bad one about, you guys know where I'm going with Boaz being a really mean guy. Or not, yeah, Boaz is really mean because he was ruthless, right? That type of jokes. I promise not to tell any of those type of jokes throughout the series, all right? So uh, we'll, we'll try to stay away from those. But we are starting a new series on the book of Ruth. And it is connected to the book of Judges, and you'll see that right from the very beginning of the text, uh, that these are connected. It's kind of a a little bit of an unusual move in in a church uh, expression during the season to use uh, these books as kind of lead-ups to the season and then into the season, because when we come to Palm Sunday, we'll actually be using a text from Ruth on that Sunday. And so that's kind of an unusual move. Um, And so uh, unusual but also i think there's some particular things in the book that are going to stand out for us there'll be a special place for us as we go throughout this season and so as we go into this let's let's pray here and then we'll get into our our sermon this morning lord thank you for the text that we've heard already this morning thank you for the way that your spirit is moving in this in this space and and in this season already as as you gather your people together as you uh, gather us to a place even in ourselves in our own hearts uh, where we take uh, inventory. Lord, our desire is to be faithful to you. That's our desire. Our desire is to be loving to one another, and our desire is to express our love for you in every aspect of our being. So use this season uh, for us and in us for your spirit to continue that good work of preparation, preparing us for each day throughout this journey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this last week on the radio, I heard a quote, value the things you can control. Value the things you can control. It was in an advertisement uh, that I heard. Uh, And the pitch man was observing that this is one of the lessons that we have, uh, that we've learned over the last two years, that we're supposed to value the things that we can control. Uh, The hearer is then encouraged to address their hair loss with hair grafts. (laughs) And in so doing, you're valuing the things you can control. (laughs) My hope is that the lessons of this past two years are not limited to just merely servicing our own vanity. That's my hope. But in contrast to this particular lesson, there is something that is spoken to uh, by that quote, that there are things that are outside of our control. Right? We may want to value the things we can control, but there are things that fall outside that control. As much as I like predictability and living without worries, things can take a quick turn. You're riding high in April. You're shot down in May. Who said that? Does anyone know? Frank Sinatra, chairman of the board. There you go. It's Frank, and he's went on to sing, that's life. That's what all the people say, right? And as much as we might plan otherwise, the Scottish poet, Robert Burns, famously reminds us, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft ugly. No one knows what the last part means, right? <laughs> was written a long time ago in Scotland things can still go wrong. That's what it means. Steinbeck wrote a book about it, Mice and Men, but life reminds us that it's not all fiction. In fact, I met with a woman a number of years ago who recounted how she and her husband were looking forward to their later years of life that they could spend together. Plans were made, downsizing, and a move happened, and retirement day finally came. And less than a year later, she was a widow. And that came as a complete shock. And that's not the only time in my ministry that I've heard a story like that. I've heard it from students. I've heard parents talk about their children who have died, uh, the sudden loss, and not just in loss of death, but people whose jobs were suddenly gone, ones they were counting on, uh, their home, they had to move out of their home suddenly. They suddenly lost their fortune, and there was a sense that their future was all gone. And the list could go on and on and on. And Naomi here in our text can certainly tell us a story about that. She certainly must have been feeling uh, that tremendous loss. In verse 2, she buries her husband. In verse 5, she buries her two sons. And painful along with that, as painful it is to bury your adult children, they leave her without an heir. And in a time and a period where having an heir meant everything. And in verse 1, we know that she finds herself vulnerable now living in a foreign land. And all this comes on the heels of already having fled the famine at home. And if it could be any crueler, right? If it could be any crueler, the text could be even any more unkind. The famine in Bethlehem. There's no bread in the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means. And this is all, of course, happening during the time of Judges. And we know what that means. We just spent a long time in the book of Judges. It's not a good time. It's a difficult time. It's a painful time. And you'll recall that refrain observed in Judges last week, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's the expression? When it rains, it pours. It was pouring at this point. And If this is your reality, you can quickly become undone. And if you're wondering what that looks like, if you want to see kind of a musical treatment of what that means, uh, you could go look at the catalog for Weezer, or you could look up the catalog for Corn. Both of them have done, done songs on that. But this is where she's living. And that though the psalmist writes in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. I bet Naomi struggled to see that. That she would have a very difficult time amidst the fog that envelops her at this very point. She wouldn't be able to see that. And we find ourselves oftentimes in that same place when trouble visits us. We find ourselves with a kind of tunnel vision. We have a loss of God consciousness at that moment. Our spiritual peripheral vision is gone. We become alone, we become isolated, and we ask the question where's God in all of this? Where's God at? The story here is going to remind us. Of something that we cannot see at that moment with our tunnel vision. The story of Ruth is gonna tell us a different kind of story than the one our hearts are telling us in those very moments, but it's not gonna tell it to us quite yet. Our reading begins, as does the entire book, identifying two things, both of which have already been noted. In the days when the judges ruled, that's number one. Number two, there was a famine in the land. And I think we as readers, when we come to this text, we're supposed to see that both of those are related. They're not separate things, but they're related. Consider what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. If you will only heed his, his every commandment that I am commanding you today, loving the Lord your God and serving him with all your heart and with all your soul, then he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, and you will gather in your grain, your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you will eat your fill. That, of course, is good and positive, right? That sounds good. Even if you're not a farmer, that still sounds good, right? They'll provide the groceries over at Safeway for you, all right? If you need to have a little translation. Now, hear the alternative as the chapter continues Take care, or you will be sedu- seduced into turning away, serving other gods and worshiping them. That sounds a lot like the book of Judges. For then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens. So there'll be no rain and the land will yield no fruit then you will perish quickly off the good land that the lord has given you so no rain no fruit equals famine that's a famine right there and finding this place in the time of the judges a period when we've already seen the people turn away and serve the other gods of their time and to do so time in and time again it appears that what we have here at the outset of ruth is the consequence for bad behavior that we see there in one of those cycles a land and a people under judgment so in this light as we read the first few verses here this certain man of Bethlehem and his family they're not merely relocating it's not like they're taking a new job in a new city looking for greener pastures somewhere where they might enjoy a a bigger paycheck and greater opportunity for advancement but instead what they are probably doing is they're attempting to flee from God's judgment. If that's the case, if Deuteronomy is accurate, and the time of the judges is where they find themselves, the more appropriate response here would would have been one of confession and repentance of the people for the healing of their land. But instead, he hopes to evade judgment by hiding amongst the trees of the garden. That sounds like an old story. That goes all the way back to Genesis. And that seems to be the place where we oftentimes find ourselves. In the midst of the struggle, we find ourselves hiding and hoping that we might have evaded the consequences of our actions. And here, the evading is marked by one who leaves the land altogether. The story of Ruth, then, begins with prodigals. If you think about the prodigal son, these are prodigals. They're running away from home they're hoping to avoid consequences as they do so but where they go is certainly not home Moab is not home alright we're not talking about Utah right now it's beautiful that, as that is In the ancient world we're talking about a different place for these people from Israel the Moabites are not their people now we in this room have a bunch of family stories. Who has a family story? We're not gonna ask you to tell the story, but you have a family story that gets told oftentimes, and in some ways it gives some sort of definition to who your family is. Does anyone have a story like that? Again, we're not gonna ask you to tell your story. Do you have family stories? You gotta raise your hand. I know, I know it's Presbyterian Church, but we gotta raise our hands every once in a while. Okay, all right, there's a few family stories here. All right, look for those people afterwards, ask them what their story was. But in a room like this, there, there's stories for each and every family that's here. You, you've got family stories. There's, there's things that you tell about, you know, uh, Weird Uncle Carl. right? Remember that time when Weird Uncle Carl bought stock in Apple and everybody laughed at him? Now Weird Uncle Carl has a mansion. Right? So there's all kinds of families that we have that make up the meaning for who we are and, 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 and how we became who, who we are. And there's stories about Moabites. They have, there's family stories that go on. But those stories, Uh, Paint a picture that's not very flattering. Genesis chapter nineteen thirty seven. The Moabites are descended from the son of Lot. Right? Hey, they're a son of Lot. Right? That's what the Moabites are descended from. The son Moab uh, in his his tribe. These these people are called Moabites. Of course, that story goes on to say that uh, the son was born to the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Now. You might say, well, okay, well, that's in the Bible and stuff. But, you know, jokes today still, right? We have jokes today about certain regions where they talk about family trees that are just a stick, right? <laughs> right, we have jokes like that. So we know that's not a flattering characterization. It wasn't flattering back then either as they tell, tell that story. Of course, being a family, uh, at least a distant family, the way that these two relate uh, is, is one that's not always peaceful. Now, probably some of your biggest fights in your life will be with your family, right? We know that. Siblings, for some reason, it becomes much more violent when they do battle with each other, right? You fight with your best friend, it's like, okay, you're fighting. But when two siblings go at it, it's like a full-on civil war going on. And we see that here with with the folks here, the Moabites. Exodus, uh, during the Exodus, Numbers 22 tells us that uh, King Balak, who was king of Moab, sends a message to Balaam. Uh, he asks him to curse uh, the people of Israel. Uh course this this action results to them being the Moabites being excluded from the Assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 23 for ten generations I don't hold grudges all right so right so it's you think about how that that's not peaceful between these two people and of course we remember the episode from Judges chapter 3 how could you forget Eglon king of Moab that portly king who's assassinated by Ehud when your king gets assassinated by another people that's going to leave a bitter taste in your mouth so though they are related distantly, of course, uh, these are not their people. The Moabites and the Israelites, these are not one, one people. And this land which these prodigals go to and their sons who then marry women from Moab tells us that the story is not only going to include prodigals, but the story we're about to hear is also going to include outsiders, foreigners. So we got outsiders and we have prodigals it kinda sounds like we're gonna hear a Bible story pretty soon that runs from cover to cover and that's what Ruth is gonna do for us it's setting the stage right from the beginning to tell us what God is up to that God is gonna do something with a prodigal and God is gonna do something with an outsider so if you're a prodigal this morning and you somehow wandered your way back into here we got good news for you And if you're an outsider and you feel like you don't belong to what's going on here in this space amongst these people, we've got more good news for you. and It's going to come from the book of Ruth, if we listen carefully. But of course, we're still left with that question that's hanging out there for us from this book and from these first few verses. Where's God in all of this? Where's God amidst the suffering that I experience in life? Where's God when I run into the troubles and the disappointments when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Where's God then? God seems so absent. My family and I visited North Bend this past week. Uh, It's kind of a weird journey because we weren't really planning on going but then Thursday night we're doing research for Easter foods. Now some of you guys know this about me. I I like food. I, I really like food and the more exotic the better. So I was on that site, you know, the one I showed you with the pie cake in? Remember that site? I was back at that site again, so now you know I have a problem. (laughs) And we were looking to see what, if you typed in Easter in the search box, what would show up? And then they had a little search by state by state. And so I typed in Washington State just to see what restaurants were being represented. And they had the cherry pie that you could have in North Bend. I I assume that that was back in the show Twin Peaks was on the air, it was part of that somehow. And so we decided, let's go have a piece of cherry pie in North Bend. And that was going to be our journey on Friday. And so while we were there, we entered a shop. And the shop was selling all kinds of things to hang in your house and decorate your house. And there was a sign up on the wall that read, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I cannot feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. That's what the sign said. And this inspirational quote was attributed at the bottom uh, to having been written on a cellar wall during the Holocaust. Right, that, and that message was written on some cellar wall during the Holocaust. And you, of course, may have seen versions of this quote online. Maybe you've got the same thing hanging in, in your house somewhere. Uh, you may have been inspired by it. Uh, this piece that we saw is now hanging in our dining room. But here's the issue. The quote, though, is not actually or may not actually purport to what it claims to be. Seems that liberties may have been taken with both the quote and the ascription on it. You know, I did some reading on that. This is where I geek out a little bit. I buy a quote, and then I try to research the quote, and I read a bunch of stuff. Like I said, I have a problem. It <laughs> seems to have multiple facets to it. And I looked up this quote, and was reading about it, and, and the more I learned, it looks like it may have been the victim of a game of telephone, that there was a quote at one point, and tale after tale after tale, it finally came to the version that we now have hanging in our dining room. And of course, it, it, it exists in this form for us because don't you like to feel like a, a stalwart in life? Like a, the story that you are somehow this hero amongst the crashing waves of life? Don't we like that feeling that, that our faith will sustain us in the shadow of death? It makes a great human interest story. That I am that somehow in that cellar facing the m- most difficult hour of my life. And watching the destruction of my people, and I scrawl a poem on the wall, right? Like, that's a great story. And it's like, wow, what human endurance! It's amazing. It's the reason why we watch triathlons. It's also the reason why I don't watch triathlons, human endurance. <laughs> but Ruth reminds us of another story, it tells us a different story. We might create the shiny story, but Ruth tells us an altogether different story right from the beginning. And that story peeks out at us in a way that stories in the Old Testament oftentimes do. And I think of the story of Job. Remember the book of Job, how it starts out. This man named Job. And you already know everything you need to know about what's going to happen in the next few chapters in Job just because you know that line. Because Job means persecuted. So you know you're going to read a story that's going to be a difficult one to come and we see the same thing here in Ruth. That when the reality of life is depicted to us on page, the one that we run away from, the one that we try to insulate ourselves from and isolate ourselves from, the one that includes difficulty and trial and struggle and yes, death. When that story shows up, the writer here reminds us at that moment that hope still blooms. That in the fields of misery, we still find seeds of grace. Because in an age when there was no king in Israel, and you know how the rest goes, we read about a man named Elimelech. Elimelech. Now you might say that's a weird name. But it's actually more than weird. It's a better name. It means God is king. El-melech. God is king. In a time when there is no king, you're about to hear a story. A story about how God is king, even amidst the shadows of death. And in hearing that, we know that God is closer than we might imagine. Closer than any of these characters might have imagined. And in this story that begins with a family whose experiences screams, Undone! I've been undone. We're going to see that God isn't done. And that's where we go in the next few weeks and months. May God give us eyes and ears and hearts to receive the words and see that God truly is closer than we imagine. And in knowing that, may our faith be restored and renewed. Amen. Let us pray.